Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Uh, we enjoyed a few couple couple three weeks of vacation, and um, I got to go to a preaching seminar, and uh, then we went down to the states for a little while. Got to just kind of sit by a lake and do nothing, so it was basically like being at home, and uh, <laughs> which is what we like. And uh, weather was great. Sat on patios, did homework in. In, uh, in coffee shops, just like we normally do. So it was really a lovely vacation. But at the same time, uh, it was long enough that I really feels good to be back. And uh, I'm encouraged to be starting this new series. Um, I was going to do a You Asked For It series through the summer, and the response was kind of mixed, kind of not a lot of response. And then um, I was thinking we wanted to go through Ecclesiastes at some point, and I thought, I need to do it in a season when we're not doing life groups, because I'm not going to put teaching through Ecclesiastes on our life group leaders. So, yes, life group leaders, you can thank me for that. Um, and so that opened up the summer. And then in Ecclesiastes, as you know, one of the recurring phrases is life under the sun, and it's in the summer. You see what I did there? It's kind of a summer series on life under the sun. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the summer series on Ecclesiastes. It's a book that not everybody reads. Some people wonder why it's even in the Bible. Um, and, uh, but it's there for a reason. It's part of the wisdom literature, and, and we'll get into some of that as we go along. But let me just pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to uh, consume and be fed by all of it, that we don't just pick here and there the the psalms that we like and the stories that we like and the doctrines that we like, but your whole world, word, your, the whole counsel of scripture is for our benefit and uh, to lead us to life. And so, Lord, I just pray uh, that as we study Ecclesiastes, that you will give us the wisdom uh, that you gave the writer of this book uh, so that we might understand uh, what you are teaching us and how we might be uh, more fruitful and flourishing uh, from what we read here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, before we get into the book of Ecclesiastes directly, there's some words from the Apostle Paul to his young protege or his young student, Timothy. Uh, Timothy is going to be a pastor in a church, and uh, Paul's older Paul speaks to younger Timothy with some words that I think will help us understand what the writer of the book Ecclesiastes is aiming at as an older man writes to a younger generation. Paul tells Timothy... That as he preaches and teaches his congregation, he should instruct them on how to live, uh, especially those who are rich, that they are to live a certain way that they might have true life. In 1 Timothy six seventeen to 19, he says this, command those, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And this is the verse. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So now, Timothy is obviously going to be preaching to people who are alive. They have life. 
In fact, it seems that the people Paul anticipates Timothy will be preaching to have a good life. They're rich people. They're comfortable people. They, might, they are enjoying God's gifts in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So these are people that are wealthy, comfortable, enjoying the gifts of God in this life. But what Paul is concerned about is that there is something they may not have acquired. The life that is truly life. There's a kind of life that God does give us as a gift in our life under the sun. But it's not truly life. It's not full life. A lot of people, maybe you listening today, turn to religion because you're seeking answers to life after death. Is there a life after death? And am I ready for my life after death? But what Paul urges Timothy, and what we will see Ecclesiastes seeks to discover, is whether there is life before death. Is there a life now in this life? And that makes Ecclesiastes a very relevant book today. Parents, let me tell you, what is top of mind to almost all of your children is not whether there is life after death. Almost everyone under 30 believes they are immortal anyway. And it's one of the reasons Ecclesiastes will talk about death a lot. But what young people, especially teenagers today and 3,000 years ago, are struggling to determine is actually if there is any kind of life before death. What is meaningful life? What is the benefit of life? What is the point of life? And by all indications, in our present generations, they are in despair of being able to discover and lay hold of life that is truly life. Even though we have accumulated as a culture great wealth and security, we are highly educated, we enjoy sophisticated political and social systems, we cheer each and everyone on, no matter how well or how poorly they do at anything, Judging by the suicide rates and the drug use rates, we're doing a very poor job as a generation of discovering the life that is truly life and being able to pass that life on to our children. Maybe some or many of those who are listening, who are older, are still asking that question. Is there life before death? Because what I'm living right now doesn't feel like life. Well, Mr. Ecclesiastes is right there with you. Here's here's how he begins his book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is named after the title of its writer, Koaleth in Hebrew. All the cool pastors keep saying Koaleth all the time, because that's the Hebrew word for the preacher. And so I'll only use Koaleth once or twice, because I'm not that cool. Um, So in Hebrew, it's Koaleth. In Greek, it's Ecclesiastes. And the clever among you will hear the root word there of ecclesia, which means the gathering or the assembly. Or we translate it the preacher or the teacher in English because it is the person who is speaking to the one that is assembled. And so this is the preacher, the teacher. Uh, I'll use that interchangeably along with coaleth when I'm feeling cool um, or Mr. Ecclesiastes. Um, But he's almost certainly King Solomon. And he's in search for the meaning in life under the sun. 
It's written by an old Solomon near the end of his kingly reign, a man who was rich in the present world, just as Paul was saying Timothy would teach his congregation who enjoyed many blessings of this life. Solomon was wise in the present world. He was young and strong in the present world. He enjoyed as many of God's gifts as could possibly be received in this life, and he helped himself to a lot more gifts that he wasn't actually supposed to have. And it's written autobiographically so that we as the reader can journey with him as the teacher attempts to discover if there is life before death, if there is a life that is truly life to be had under the sun. And as I mentioned, it's an especially useful book for young people. Solomon is going to address the young at several points and specifically does not want you, young people, to repeat his mistakes or to carry with you in life the same regrets that he has had to bear. So listen up. Solomon's going to address the rat race of careers and of wealth accumulation. He's going to deal with the unfairness of injustice, misappropriated political power. He's going to deal with relationships and family, sex, drugs, rock and roll, hard work, laziness, evil, and righteousness, even ways that we can make church futile. He's going to talk about all of that stuff, and he's aiming it at essentially teenagers, young Israelites, And it's helpful to old people, too, as Solomon has seen and experienced all that you have, and more, much more. And he's smarter than you and all of your friends put together. So that's part of what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is something else as we read along. We need to keep in mind that it is a clear-eyed argument for the unbeliever to consider carefully what meaning they think they can get in any part of life apart from the Lord. And in the end, how any unbeliever, or believer for that matter, imagine that they will possibly outsmart or get victory over death in the end, and what comes after. And so you'll find this book does not pull a single punch for either the faithful or the faithless in confronting us with the reality of life. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. Or as Solomon says, the miserable business of life God has afflicted us with. In verse 13, for both believers and unbelievers, Ecclesiastes is a relentless description of the shock of life as seen at ground level, under the sun. Mr. Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, functions for us kind of like an embedded war correspondent. He is relaying to us the despair and futility of life and death in the trenches in the clearest possible language with a 4K GoPro camera strapped to his helmet and feeding us in this book the reality of life, good, bad, and ugly. And he feeds it right into what we thought were our comfortable, safe existences. I mean, just think about it for a minute. You're sitting there on a peaceful evening and you open your Bible near the middle for a comforting bit of encouragement and you get slapped in the forehead with Ecclesiastes and immediately go scrambling for a Psalms just to get a bit of light and life into your night. But there's a purpose to Ecclesiastes. There's a purpose to every depressing sentence that Solomon drips off the end of his pen. In fact, part of the mystery and brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that the emotional roller coaster and the emotional landscape of the book that Solomon draws you into as you read it is the message that Solomon wants you to get. 
Similar to the book of Job, another wisdom book, the meaning of Ecclesiastes is not only in the information it contains. The meaning of Ecclesiastes comes to us by what we experience reading Ecclesiastes. And so, chapter by chapter and topic by topic, the preacher is deliberately making the darkness intolerable so that the glimpses of light that he does allow to shine through down into the trenches become all the brighter and will lead us out of the darkness. Ecclesiastes is one of the most brilliant arguments and reassurances for faith in God, as argued from an almost purely secular worldview. One of the interesting things about wisdom literature is it rarely talks about, almost never talks about, the covenant or redemption or God or all the big themes of the Bible. Wisdom literature is written from the point of view of life under the sun, from the secular view of mankind. And Mr. Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, is saying, can we discover anything under the sun that is for our flourishing and blessing? So let's dive in. This is going to be a journey through about 11 steps through the summer, but that's exactly what the preacher intends his writing to be. He wants it to be a journey, and we have to join with him and experience with him what he's experienced and discover with him what he, the wisest man to ever live, has discovered. i got to remember this for later. Don't let me forget that. Ecclesiastes 1 1 to 3, and then I'm going to skip to 12 to 15, and I'll talk about the middle piece. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his works, which he does under the sun? And then there's a poetic summary that follows those verses, about 10 verses of uh, a poetic uh, summary of the futility of life which we'll touch on later. And then he comes back and he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task or a miserable business which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted." Oh, that's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) See, life group leaders, this is why I didn't want to saddle you with this. Um, Obviously, if we're going to understand Ecclesiastes, we have to know what is meant by vanity of vanities, all is vanity. uh, This phrase occurs in, in 40 verses of the book. There's only 12 chapters, so it comes up a lot. And it's a confusing English translation. It doesn't mean your bathroom counter, uh, and it doesn't doesn't even mean your pride or your conceit. Um, You have to go further back in the English language, and we get closer with, with definitions like emptiness or without value. That is vanity. It's empty. Uh, The Hebrew word here is hebel. It means breath or vapor. It refers to something that is elusive. So it's hebel, hebel, all is hebel. Everything is vaporous. Everything is elusive. And and the vanity of vanities often is bookended with the phrase, as it is up here, um, striving after or chasing after the wind. And so you can Take vanity of vanities or striving after wind. It means essentially the same thing. Solomon is just saying it slightly different ways. And so what that means is that it doesn't precisely mean meaningless. Meaningless is not a great 
translation for this word. The, the preacher, actually, as we go through Ecclesiastes, will find some meaning for us under the sun. Not everything is meaningless. Wisdom has meaning. Um, you know, family has meaning. Companionship has meaning. So it doesn't mean meaningless, but it does convey um, futility or fruitless result of an activity. And so whenever you see vanity, in my mind, I translate it futility or futile. And uh, it's as useless as trying to grab the wind and hold on to it in accomplishing a purpose. And, and Solomon's argument is pretty clear then, if, if depressing. Uh, everything in life is futile. Everything is useless. Uh, the summary poem of verses 3 to 11 emphasizes this point. Uh, If you go back and read it later, generations of people come and go, but the earth stays the same. The sun rises and sets. The wind keeps blowing in circles and coming around again. Rivers flow down into the sea, but they never accomplish filling it up. Uh, They just come back out of the ground where they started. Uh, Nothing satisfies us. Whatever has been done will be done again. Nothing is new under the sun, and nobody remembers anyway. And what is even worse about this miserable business, this grievous task of living that Solomon tells us about or his opening argument is that it is God that has afflicted this on us, Solomon says. And you can almost hear the cynics sitting around the bar as he's talking about this and they're like, cheers to that, mate. Like, God gave me the short end of the stick, Uh, that's for sure. And so, I mean, I may or may not believe in God, but if there is a God, I'm blaming him. And that's where Solomon starts. That's what the book says. And it's lines like this that make some people wonder whether this book should even be in the Bible. But just, again, remember the journey. We have to journey with Solomon here. He isn't saying anything that God has not already said himself. As we just a couple months ago learned in our doctrine series on sovereignty, God is sovereign over everything under the sun. There's nothing under the sun that is apart from God. Even if we try to find meaning without him, he is still involved. The good, the bad, the blessings, the afflictions, God lays claim to all of them. It's God who brings disaster on a city, Amos 3.6 says, and causes man to be born blind or mute, Exodus 4.11 and John 9.3. And so when Solomon says things like this, Solomon is simply meeting his audience where they are at. Whether they're God-believers or not God-believers, he is meeting them right where they live, on the ground under the sun of a world that is cursed. Solomon is starting his argument at the beginning with the fallen Edenic reality of Genesis chapter 3. Remember, Adam and Eve sin, and God catches them in the garden. And he says to them that because they sinned, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's basically a summary of Ecclesiastes. That's Solomon's argument. He's acknowledging this is the state of the world. He's not saying anything different than God has said. The preacher might be accused of plagiarism almost here. Life is a grievous task afflicted on us by God with toil and labor that earns us nothing in the end. We all go back to dust. Solomon makes this argument, and he's actually going to prove it in various ways, as we'll see coming. Remember, Mr. Ecclesiastes intends to make the darkness intolerable so the hope that is held out shines all the brighter. 
And one of the reasons Ecclesiastes can be hard for us today, how, why Ecclesiastes, as we read, it seems like bitter medicine for us to swallow, even though it's what we need, is because we live in a culture, even a church culture, that does not do well with lament or discouragement or regret. We are quickly reaching for hope as fast as we can. Wisdom literature, on the other hand, is meant to teach us how to face the reality of a fallen world and to process the experience of living in a fallen world properly. Job teaches us how to live and where God is when it seems like we have absolutely nothing and everything has been taken away. Ecclesiastes is the other side of that coin. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live and where God is when it seems like Solomon, we have everything except the thing we need to fill that emptiness inside. Both Job and Ecclesiastes arrive at the same conclusion, but they lead us there by different paths of seeking meaning in the circumstances of our lives, whether we are in absolute destitution with nothing as Job was, or whether we are king of the world like Solomon. We have to live in this life under the sun and find meaning in it. And when we read Ecclesiastes today, as Jesus intends for us to do, we read it in new covenant light. Is futility your concern, Solomon? It's not as if God didn't know that futility was part of the equation. He's the one that turned futility into the means of our redemption. And so when we read Ecclesiastes in light of the new covenant, we read things like Paul wrote in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility. Futility of futilities. All is futility. (laughs) Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, futility is going to have a purpose. Futility has meaning in and of itself, and that's what Ecclesiastes will tell us. Now, even though Solomon is not living with new covenant realities in mind, this is 900 years before Jesus, Mr. Teacher here is going to lead his listeners to the same place. The cynics that are sitting in the bar with him, who shake their fist at God, and the believers who, like Solomon did, are searching for answers in all the wrong places, Solomon is going to lead them through futility back to hope. And we're sitting in the teacher's class. Maybe today you're wondering why life is not delivering all that it promised. You put on a happy face, but inside you know your friends are not as friendly as you hoped they would be. In fact, maybe now some of your friends are your enemies. Your career is not as satisfying as it first felt like it was going to be in those early days and years. Money hasn't solved your problems. Your marriage isn't as shiny as it was on the honeymoon. Maybe even God hasn't performed to your satisfaction. That's part of Solomon's initial complaint. Well, Solomon is going to bring us all back around to the same God that subjected this life to futility in hope. But he's going to get us there in 11 chapters. He's going to get us there truthfully and authentically and open-eyed and honestly through the real life that all real people have to live. And in so doing, he meets all of us exactly where we need to be met. In the seeming futility and aimlessness of life under the sun. Why trust the preacher? If this is a book about life under the sun and what it has to offer or does not offer, we would hope that our guide on this journey has experienced it all and is smart enough to have investigated and researched it all. And we'll get into a lot more of that next week in chapter 2. But Solomon covers all the bases. This guy was king of the most powerful nation on earth at its peak. 
Solomon was literally the smartest person on the planet before or since. God gifted him with supernatural wisdom. 1 Kings 4 says that the breadth of mind of Solomon was like the sand on the seashore, so that his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then it goes on to list some fairly smart people, apparently, that he was smarter than, and all the subjects that he was smart in. So he's smart. He worked hard, and he played harder. He built temple. He built the temple. He built buildings. He built mansions. He built whole cities. He was incredibly productive. And at the same time, he also apparently drank and feasted a lot. He had 300 concubines and 700 wives. Got to have learned something from that. Uh, He was as politically connected as possible. He was always the most powerful person in any room he walked into. He had personal rock bands, he had servants, he had slaves, he tried out dozens of different religions, and he tried out no religion. He had amazing seasons in his life, and he had tragedy and grief. He tested madness and folly to see if it was better than wisdom. He was also young and enjoyed the joys of youth, of health and power, and he's also got old, and he's feeling the pain of age, and he sees where his health is heading. There is no part of life under the sun that Solomon did not take full and enthusiastic enjoyment of and participation in. That's why we trust this guy. Because none of us has lived the life that Solomon has lived or have the opportunity to live the life that Solomon has lived. And he would say, I don't want you to. I want you to learn from me. And what's his assessment? After all of Solomon's living and searching, and studying, and working, and striving, and partying, and loving, and warring with all his money, and his power, and his friends, and his slaves, and his strategies for living, and his wisdom. He concludes the beginning of his summary here in chapter 1 with a proverb. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That's his conclusion. That Everything's bent, everything's crooked, and it can't be straightened out under the sun, and it's lacking. You can't count what you don't have. Nobody can straighten out what is crooked. And if there's something missing, you can't count it. If it's not there, you don't know what's missing. There is no answer under the sun to be found. Life is like one of those old-fashioned, remember when wire coat hangers, you know, I think they're all plastic now, but we used to have wire coat hangers, you know, and, and I remember when we were at the cottage, we would have a campfire and we'd want to roast, you know, hot dogs. And you run in and you raid the closet, pull out the wire coat hangers, and you untwist that part at the top and you pull it apart. And once you get it pulled apart, then you're trying to straighten it, you know, because you've you got to get it over the fire. I defy anyone to straighten a wire coat hanger after you've unwound it. You cannot, with your hands, get that wire straight again. You certainly can't straighten out the curly bit at the end, which you end up twisting into your hot dog. But life is like a wire coat hanger. It's crooked, and you cannot get it straight again. Try as hard as you want. Those bends stay there. So you just dangle your hot dog over the fire, and it's springy, and it's crooked, and you can't hold it because the weight's unbalanced, and it bounces around, and it gets ash stuck in it. And now the metaphor has gone too far, but that's all right. Um, But you know what I mean. And Solomon, even though he's probably, you know, of all the things he's done, has probably never cooked a hot dog with a wire coat hanger. That's what he's talking about. He's saying life is crooked. We're crooked. We're bent out of shape. Life is bent out of shape, and you cannot make it straight. 
And he says, if something is empty, you can't count what it doesn't hold. Like my bank account. <laughs> count up what you have. I, how do you count nothing? What purpose does your life have? What meaning does it have? I can't tell you because there's nothing there in the emptiness to count. So what do we need then? We, we need something that's from not under the sun. <laughs> something that's not from under heaven, but from heaven in order to solve this problem. And Solomon is going to get us there in his way. But let's just look at what Isaiah had already said about this life under the sun. Isaiah 44 says, Every valley shall be exalted or lifted up, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Solomon knew this. Under the sun, crooked things can't get straightened out. Isaiah says, There is a time when the crooked will be made straight. There's someone who can straighten what is crooked. There is someone who is going to make straight what is bent. And Solomon already knows him. He's going to talk about him a lot in this book. And we're going to join with him under the sun in order to straighten out what we cannot. He's going to come and straighten things out. And he's going to come to fill what is empty. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in the New Testament and he is proclaiming the arrival of Jesus this other preacher who follows Solomon. And in Luke chapter 3, as the preacher is preaching in the wilderness, how does he introduce Jesus? Where does he go? Yeah, he goes to Isaiah 40. This is what John the Baptist says of Jesus. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. And the road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. You see, Solomon, his conclusion at the beginning, where he's leading us, is that everything is crooked. We can't solve it. I can't solve it. I was the king of the first world nation of 3,000 years ago. I was the king on top of the mountain of the earth. I had everything, militarily, culturally, educationally, wisdom, wives, money, everything. I investigated everything in life, and all I found was that it was crooked and could not be made straight. It was empty and could not be filled. But there is one coming who is going to do it. You're not wrong, Solomon. Preach it. The crooked cannot be made straight by us. We can't fill up what is lacking, no matter how high we rise in this world, no matter how much we accumulated. But there is one who can straighten our path and fill it up. And his name, of course, is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Right? All of this that's happening right now under the sun doesn't seem joyful, it seems sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is going to be the ultimate message of Ecclesiastes for us. Even though Solomon is meeting all of his cynics exactly where they are and saying God has afflicted us with a miserable business of life, that this world is cursed, Solomon's going to dive into all of that and say, amen, that is the way it is. 
But he makes the darkness all the darker so that the glimpses of hope that he holds out in chapters 2 through 12 shine all the brighter. And we live in New Testament, New Covenant reality that the one who Isaiah prophesied, the one who Solomon says is in charge of all of this crookedness has come to make it straight again for those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, This is just a taste of Ecclesiastes. That's all we have time for this morning because we want to come now to commune with you. We we sit in our lives here under the sun and we want to commune with the one who is over the sun. We want to commune with the sun who came to make crooked paths straight, to make bent lives straight, to heal crooked limbs. And Father, for many of us, We're there. We're living it right now, or we can remember living it in the past. For some of us, especially younger ones, we feel it in the tension of our lives, in the dissatisfaction of what's going on, but we can't quite put our finger on it. And Ecclesiastes is going to help us do that. Ecclesiastes is going to help us confront life open-eyed and authentically and honestly and say, yeah, this is what life is. And we can ask the question, is there life before death? And the answer is going to be yes and amen. There is life before death, and that life is found in the one who makes crooked things straight in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I just pray as we study this book, as we read your word, as we uh, confront the reality that Solomon confronts, that at the same time we will be filled with hope and the reality that you have not left us alone under the sun, but have sent your son to join us and to make a way for us. And now as we enter into communion, Lord, he is the one that we remember and what he did for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.